ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution. As one or two of you who have been here before may know, <laughs> the National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And as those of you who have been here before also know, I have the great privilege of moderating book discussions with the world's greatest authors here every week. But I hope all of the people who have been here before will not take offense when I confess the truth, which is that Jeffrey Ward is my favorite historian. Thank you, sir. I'm a, I'm a groupie and a junkie, and I have spent, I have re read and reread his three great books about Franklin Roosevelt, a f Before the Trumpet, about Roosevelt's youth, a first-class temperament, which takes us up from his callow early adulthood until he becomes president, and closest companion, his completely riveting account of the close friendship, let's call it, between uh, the president and uh, Daisy Sukli. Uh, and we'll talk about the ways in which the recent movie on the matter <laughs> distorted uh, the relationship in the crudest and most absurd ways uh, imaginable. So I'm here as a fan, and I've really been just counting the days until Jeffrey Ward came so that I can ask him about all my favorite anecdotes and share with you uh, his brilliant insights into FDR's emotional makeup of this extraordinary com complex and man who is also perhaps our greatest president, as well as the emotional complexity uh, that created the characters of Theodore and Eleanor, which so many of us have seen in this spectacular PBS documentary, which is proving to be one of the most highly watched PBS documentaries of all time. Who has actually seen the show or parts of it? All right, so <laughs> you're among friends. And you're just going to have lots and lots of questions about all of our favorite anecdotes, and we have so much to talk about. Let me just put in one brief plug for uh, the, the couple of programs coming up. You know, at the end of the month, we're um, opening the President George H.W. Bush Bill of Rights Gallery, displaying one of the 12 original copies of the Bill of Rights. It'll be opened by Justice Alito and uh, uh, David Rubenstein and Governor Jeb Bush, and it's going to be an astonishingly exciting thing to display the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the original Bill of Rights in one place. We have two superb programs next week. Michael Gerhardt is he here to discuss the most forgotten presidents and their constitutional legacies, and that's just going to be wonderful. And then on October 7th, the next day, we've got a blockbuster debate with our friends at Intelligence Squared about metadata phone record collection and the Fourth Amendment. Okay, let's now uh, turn off your cell phones, write down your questions on uh, the wonderful note cards that we've passed around, and let me dive into the conversation I've been waiting for. I've told you about Jeffrey Ward's spectacular books on FDR. He's the author of 17 books in all. Uh, he is the uh, winner of so many prizes, including the Francis Parkman Prize. Uh, he's been a finalist for the Pulitzer. And of course, he's a longtime collaborator with Ken Burns, has won seven Emmys, written 27 historical documentaries, uh, including the Roosevelt's in Intimate History. Please join me in welcoming my favorite historian, Jeffrey Ward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I know we're supposed to start with 
Theodore Roosevelt, but I want to start with FDR just because I have waited so long to meet you. You just paint this riveting picture of the fact that his relationship with his mother was so central to everything that he became, the smothering consistency of her love, his need to separate herself from her at the same time as he retained this incredible bond, and there's that unforgettable scene in the, uh, in the book where he's president and he finds the mementos of his babyhood that she had lovingly set aside, and for the first time ever, his intimate staff sees him weep. Tell us about that story. Uh, his mother died in uh, 1941 at 80-something, just before uh, Pearl Harbor. And he, he got home and he saw her, he talked to her for three days, and then she finally died. And uh, about a week later, he was in his office. If, if you've been to the Roosevelt Library, it's the office uh, attached to what is now the museum. Uh, and they were, his secretaries were cleaning out some cupboards, moving things around, and they found a box. And in the box were childhood drawings that he'd made and locks of his hair and that sort of thing. And he, he was a man who never displayed emotion in public ever. Uh, and he suddenly burst into tears, and they left him alone, sobbing next to that thing. I, I am a great fan of his mother, um, uh, and I, I like to argue about this because people don't think so, especially if they saw Sunrise at Campobello or any of the things where she's portrayed as a sort of dragon. She, um, if, if, uh, if you want to define a great mother, it seems to me it's, it's a mother who makes her children feel that they can do anything that they put their hand and mind to. And if, if that's the definition, she wins because he, he had this unbelievable inbred confidence in himself, uh, which served him and this country and civilization <laughs> well. Um, so I, I think we owe a great debt to her. She was not the finest mother-in-law in history. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, that's a whole other story. Well, see, I want to. Well, first, I'll, let me argue with you just for the fun of it, and sure. then and then we can talk about that joint townhouse uh, that uh, with that so mm -hmm. upset Eleanor, where Sarah could pop in at any moment unannounced on her on her daughter-in-law. But I guess the, I, I'm persuaded, of course, by your case for her. But the case against uh, Sarah Delano Roosevelt would be the the love was so smothering. He expressed it. There's that moment that you describe where he goes off and says, ah, for freedom, and then runs away for a day and gets himself all dirty and then he comes back to He was six or something. Or something. Yeah. yeah. He's just desperate because she's so smothering and she's giving him a bath, you know, until he's... Until he was nine. 23 or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he goes around and, and gets dirty and then comes back and obediently performs his routine. So if he hadn't had polio and hadn't been tested by that ordeal... Might he have been a kind of narcissistic mama's boy, as he was viewed at Harvard and at yeah. Groton, who you know had his heirs because he could count on his you know called feather duster because he was so so uh, so uh, charming, and basically basically been a mama's boy. I, I don't think he ever would have been a mama's boy. Uh, you know, uh, they were very close. Uh, they looked alike. There are some pictures, there are a couple in this new book, which, which you can see her, and she, she looks as if it's, it's him with a wig. I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> she waves the same way and everything else. Um, 
quite early, he figured out that if he was going to survive, he had to work up uh, all sort of survival mechanisms and keep secrets. And he kept a diary in code so that his mother could not see it. He courted Eleanor Roosevelt and persuaded her to marry him without ever, without his mother having the slightest idea that this was happening. So when he needed to, he could get away from her, I think. Um, He was a very um, self-centered, glossy, irresistible, but glossy fella when he was young. And I do think polio had a good deal to do with sort of broadening him. Um, but he, but it didn't, it, it didn't transform him. I, I, don't, I don't think that's true. I, I, think it, uh, I think he was the same person, but with new, uh, with new elements, with more empathy, with a sense that you can't have everything right away. I think that, to me, that's almost the most imper- important thing he learned after polio, which was that if, if, you, if you're sitting in a chair and you have to get somebody to bring you something, that isn't going to happen instantly. And a person who was already charming became even more charming because he can't get up and do things. So he has to keep people attracted to him by being wonderfully charming and magnetic. There, there are a lot of adjustments to polio that he made, I think. I, I, I... Forgive me for asking. I'm sure you're you're asked all the time. Did your disability affect the way that you viewed his dealing with his disability? Sure. I had polio when I was nine, and uh, uh, I'm nowhere near as serious as a case as his. Um, yeah. And when I was writing the chapters about polio in the book, you have to when you have something like that, you have to sort of sit down and say, who am I writing about now? When I try to you know, to figure out how someone feels. Um, I, I think I pulled that off, but I, it, it was kind of a struggle. But I do, I do think it gave me an insight into, into his daily struggles. Um, and I hope if, if the film works, if you saw the fourth show, which was mostly about that, I don't think you can ever look at him again as president doing the things that he did without, I hope, without in your mind realizing <clears throat> what an extraordinary effort it is for him to do the simplest things that he makes look easy and effortless since he's always wonderfully happy and always smiling and so on. And he wasn't wonderfully happy all the time, but nobody knew it. So let's put the building blocks of the personality in place and then talk about how they were transformed by polio. So there's this desire to compartmentalize and to write in code to create a space of privacy from his mother, and then the need to always seem cheerful and positive in order to avoid upsetting his father. I just want to say, I have never had anybody interview me who's read the book as carefully. Well, it's, I've it's read really, them a whole bunch of times. It's such a joy. I don't I really, have to explain I anything. I really like these books. I hope you all are having a good time. I'm enjoying this. Um, They're excellent. Yeah, his, when he was, I think, nine, his father, who was much older than his mother, uh, had a heart attack. And the doctor said, Mr., he was called Mr. James, Mr. James must never be... Uh, made to worry or be anxious about anything. So FDR, who already belonged to a class which wasn't, you weren't supposed to show your emotions, had, had the added pressure for, well, from when he was nine until his father died and he was a freshman at Harvard. It, his job was not to worry his father. 
because if he worried his father, he might kill his father. I mean, that, it, in a kid's mind, that's how that works. And so he was even more um, uh, encouraged to keep everything inside. And um, it makes him, to me, endlessly fascinating to try to write about because you're trying all the time to figure out what's he really thinking in there. And, and you never get it all. I mean, he's, he is the most compartmentalized man. Uh, it's extraordinary. Why did he choose Eleanor? Oh, I think he fell in love with her. I, he, I, I have to do this carefully. He, um, he had fallen in love with a very glamorous, much younger girl at, when he was at Harvard. She was a, from the North Shore and, and very, very beautiful and, and much sought after. And he courted her. And he, uh, he made one terrible mistake, which was he said he, he was going to be president of the United States. He was now a uh, junior, I think, in, in Harvard. He planned to be president of the United States, and he wanted to have six children because Theodore Roosevelt had six children. And she uh, did not wish to bear six children. <laughs> and she told her granddaughter, uh, who, who told it to me, she said, I, I did not marry Franklin Roosevelt because I did not wish to become a cow. <laughs> <laughs> and then she went on to marry this Sorry, I was, yes. Boston banker. No, no. Yes. And, and, uh, and became later a Republican. She was, Republicans said she was always glad she'd never become the president's lady. Yes. Would you think was that a little bit of compensation, or she was genuinely happy? No, I think she. I think she was. Yeah. She was a the good, solid Republican family she came yeah. from to begin with. Um, but but for Eleanor, but I, we yeah. didn't get to Eleanor. Yeah. I'm sorry. He he saw her off on an ocean liner uh, to go when she made her debut at, at the court in London, leaving him alone, and he went and saw his. Uh, cousin, whom he knew very slightly, and I think he just fell in love with her. Uh, she was a very attractive young woman, um, uh, very substantive, very, uh, very intelligent, um, and uh, I think he, and, and I think she was dazzled by him, and I think he liked having her dazzled by him, um, and she was Theodore Roosevelt's favorite niece. Now, Theodore Roosevelt was his hero, and I suppose that was part of the equation, but I think it was a very small part. Okay. I, there are people who say he just did it because he wanted to get into politics. I think that's a lot of hooey. Okay, so we have this extraordinarily confident and loved, uh, if smothered, uh, <laughs> uh, incredibly ambitious Franklin, and the insecure and... Uh, uncertain and brutalized Eleanor, who is so worried when they get married that she says, he's so attractive, I'm not sure I can keep him. So that resulted from her quite traumatic uh, childhood. Tell us about oh. her very uh, fraught uh, relationship with her cold mother and her idealizing of her alcoholic father. Well, um, Elliot Roosevelt was apparently very charming when he was young and then had things wrong with him, and I don't think anyone has ever figured out what they are. But they resulted in, he had seizures of some kind that were not clear what they were. Uh, he then became an alcoholic and, uh, and uh, you know, a fox hunting, uh, 
world traveling, big game hunting cipher. There was not much there, I think. And, uh, but in this little girl's mind, she, I, I should say, he, sorry, he left, basically was thrown out of the house by his desperate wife because he acted so strangely. He was really dangerous. Um, but to a little girl, the parent who stays is not as wonderful and perfect and glamorous and, I mean, this is a standard thing in divorces, as the, as the, the distant perfect parent who somehow the horrible parent threw out. So she didn't think much of her mother and her mother, I think, didn't think much of her. I think she was quite a distant and self, self-centered person. And she just had the most miserable, miserable childhood. I, it, it's, it's hard for me to even convey. You know, she had, they had enough money so that they never had a problem of getting a meal. But uh, it was just the most emotionally arid girlhood that she had. Um, she had a very dutiful grandmother took care of her uh, because she had to. And uh, there were drunken, two drunken uncles who lived in the house. At one point when she was in her teens, she actually had two locks. They're still on the door at the house that they lived in in the country at Tivoli. Uh, special locks so she could keep those uncles out. And um, I, to me, she really, I think I say in the film, and I believe it, she really is a miracle of the human spirit. I mean, I, I don't understand how she, and then she was betrayed by her husband, confirming every self-doubt that she'd had when she was a child. And somehow, she became Eleanor Roosevelt. That betrayal, so vivid, confirming her worst fears, and then reconfirmed at his death when she shows up and learns that the mistress that she hadn't imagined that he'd seen for decades is there at his deathbed. How did it affect her? It made her very angry at her daughter who had arranged to have Mrs. Rutherford come to dinner when FDR was ill and alone in the White House. Um, I, I don't think it's a case of villains and heroes. I mean, I, I think that was a very complicated marriage that the Roosevelt's had, hugely creative, but they weren't always happy with each other, and they, there were two separate worlds they lived in. And at the very end of his life, he, he also, the, the business about the mother that you brought up, all his life he wanted um, women to ad- who adored him. And uh, Lucy Mercer uh, who then became Lucy Rutherford, um, adored him. And she was, she was beautiful and charming. I've read some of the letters, very few letters from her, but there are some. It, you can't imagine a nicer woman. <laughs> and uh, at, the very end of, at the very end of his life, she began to come and visit. It wasn't a sexual relationship. It was, a, it was an old, intimate, easy friendship. She did not have any projects for him that she insisted that he do. And Mrs. Roosevelt always had a whole agenda of things she wanted her husband to do. And uh, it was an enormous relief to him, just as Daisy Sookley was, his, his cousin about whom you spoke, and just as the, the Princess Martha of Norway. I mean, there were a lot of them. And really, their job was to sit and admire him. I don't know what else. And he'd, he'd make dumb jokes and they all laugh and it it sort of revived his spirits, I think. 
did his mother uh, smothering love give him that need just to be constantly admired? I think so. I think, yeah, I think he, I think he needed somebody to be like his mother, but not to be the admonitory mother. <laughs> you know, the one who told him, now, Franklin, you mustn't do this or that. It, he just wanted the adoration. We all, we all would like adoration. I don't know if this <laughs> right, is, is that news to anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yes, the mother, even when, when he's president, he, whatever, and talking to Churchill, he would say, Mama, you know, hang up the phone. I can hear you breathing. She, yes, she would no, listen in on the... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Exactly. Dave, and he, at one point, when... Uh, sorry for that impersonation. I was just holding no, was fine. Uh, back. When there she can, was there can be more of that. <laughs> when she was... Uh, oh, what was I going to say? I'm sorry. I've forgotten. He, Anyway, carry on. <laughs> uh, talk about Daisy Sookley. So that ridiculous movie suggested that they had, that they were in, that they well, I were hope no one saw the movie. That would please me. Um, it was a perfectly awful movie. And uh, Daisy Sookley was the unmarried, very, very distant cousin, actually a closer cousin to Eleanor Roosevelt than to Franklin. She was a member of the Livingston family, um, who lived up the road from Hyde Park and his mother, when he came home with polio in 1922 and spent a summer, most of a summer, back in his mother's house, uh, he was bored out of his mind. And she was smart enough to call up Daisy and ask her if she would come and just listen to him talk while he tried to walk around a, a thing with railings in his yard. And uh, she fell in love with him. I mean, she was 10 years younger, and he fell in love with him in, in a sort of worshipful child's way almost. And then later, during the presidency, they got together again, and she became, I, I called my book, closest companion, because she really was. She was with him uh, an astonishing amount of the time. Nobody knew anything about her. He was, she was one of his many compartments. <laughs> um, but to her and to almost no one else, he would write letters in which he expressed that said things like, I don't always want to be uh, number one in a, in a room. I don't always want to have everyone staring at me. Uh, or that my braces, I can't stand to put on my braces every time we go to a whistle stop. It's exhausting and painful. Well, those things he never said to anybody else. He never said to his wife. She, she said uh, he never mentioned polio. <laughs> I mean... It just shows you how compartmentalized and how fascinating he is and how much fun it is to try to get at him. You say that uh, Daisy and FDR had one romantic drive together. They went to the top of the hill and they may have kissed, but you think that was about it. Yeah, I think that was, yeah, I think that was it. And had you known Daisy, um, you, I think you would agree with me. <laughs> she was a very, I can't remember what the line she once, but she said once to me, she said something about, sex. She said, it's something apparently men want. And and there was another one, Laura Delano. So the people, mm -hmm. he had a harem with him when he died. Well, really. Laura, Laura Delano was, yes, was a, a very colorful uh, cousin who lived down the road. I'll tell a story which is not in the film. Um, she was a character. She had, perp she had a great slash of purple in her hair, and she wore you know, more jewelry than is sold on that channel that sells jewelry on TV. <laughs> and, uh, 
and kept dogs. Uh, what did she breed? Some very fancy kind of dogs, not Scotties. And she had a long-term affair with her kennel master, which I was like, <laughs> but anyway, she, she used to hang around FDR, and she, she was a very colorful lady. And uh, Churchill once, uh, FDR took uh, Churchill up to uh, her house. She lived, up, again, up the river, one of those beautiful houses. And uh, she had decided that she made a very fine drink with, I think, four kinds of fruit juice and bitters and rum and gin. I mean, some god-awful thing with an umbrella, you know. And uh, she, <laughs> and Churchill, she said, I'm going to make you, Mr. Prime Minister, one of these delightful drinks. What he liked was scotch, basically, or brandy or champagne. And he had it all day and into the night. And uh, she said, no, madam, I'm quite happy, just a bit of whiskey. And she said, no, no, Mr. Mr. Churchill. And so she, she made him this hideous drink. And he, she brought it to him, and he took one. They have a big stone patio out behind the house. And he, she brought it to him, and he spat it on the, <laughs> spat it on the patio. Roosevelt loved that. She was rather cruel because she told Eleanor that, uh, that Mrs. Rutherford was there. Yeah, and I don't know, I, I don't think any of us, nobody knows what that conversation was. Whether my, my theory is that probably Mrs. Roosevelt said, I, I don't quite understand who was here because she didn't know anything about it, you know. Um, and uh, it, there may have been clues that she was there. There may have been more chairs, obviously, that had been occupied. I don't know. But I, somehow the idea that she ran in and said, you know, <laughs> yeah. she was here, I don't think that's likely. But it is true that she did tell her and that it was a terrible moment for Mrs. Roosevelt. And, and, and she never sort of got over it, I think. I think she came to terms with it, and she wrote a, a sort of beautiful summaries of her husband and you can read between the lines and you can, we do use one in the film and you can realize in the end she loved him because, and she felt that he had done all the things in his life that a person could do for his country but it's not a very it's not a very personal affection thing on her Bedside table, I think when she died, she had a poem about betrayal and wrote 1918 on it. Yeah. It, it wasn't on her bed. It, it's funny. It's not. It, <clears throat> the story is that it was in her wallet, that she always had it in her wallet. And there was such a poem, and it is a poem about betrayal and how one must move on beyond betrayal and so on. First of all, she carried it, so I'm not sure she went beyond she betrayal. Sure, yes. But uh, it not isn't in her wallet up there, so I don't know what happened to it. 1918 was the year that he had the affair that with Rutherford. He had the affair with, with, with. His, with Eleanor's yeah. social secretary, who was Lucy Mercer. So twice betrayed, you know, first the first time in 1918, and then again the fact that she's at the deathbed. She, she must have been angry toward him, had terrible anger. She was angry, and she was especially angry at her daughter, because her daughter, in her absence, because she was very, she was very rarely at the White House. She was very rarely at Springwood. She was doing the things that Mrs. Roosevelt did. And Anna had moved back into the White House because her husband was off in the war. And she became her father's hostess and, and sort of tried to see to his health as much as she could and 
he asked her to arrange dinners with Mrs. Rutherford, which she did, but she didn't tell her mother. And when her mother found out, somehow that was a double betrayal, I think. So we're painting this very complicated picture you of bet. a marriage. Boy, yeah. with the compartmentalization, two people who seem so emotionally mismatched on some level, yeah. one who is, needs unqualified adoration and the other who's incapable of giving it because she mm -hmm. never had it, uh, who then her wildest fear becomes fulfilled when he betrays her and can't let go of the anger. He's compartmentalizing and finding the affection elsewhere, and he still has time to end the Depression and win World War II. Yeah. So the question is, is there a connection between the emotional complexity and his greatness as a leader? Did he become our, one of our greatest presidents because of his emotional background or in spite of it? Wow. I think because. I, I think uh, he was maddening to deal with. There were people, even people who worked for him, I can't remember who it is, somebody, somebody who was in his cabinet said, you know, the truth isn't in him, which is a rough thing to say. But he, I think that sense that he could do anything, that he could solve anything, which, which his mother gave him, which was never dented even by polio. I mean, in a rational world, he would have given up. He would not have gone back into politics. I mean, most people, as badly handicapped as he was, would never have dreamed of trying to do what he did. He assumed he could do that. He assumed he would walk again. He never gave up the notion that somehow there was going to be some magic solution that would enable him. In the last weeks of his life, Daisy Suckley, who believed in every quack in the world, no matter how mutually exclusive their quackeries, she believed all of them, she found a mystical former boxing trainer uh, who, uh, who she managed to get into the White House, uh, and he was massaging Roosevelt's legs before they went to Warm Springs, and Roosevelt said, you know, I think I can move my, I feel my toe down there. Maybe a, now, you know, he was dying, it was clearly not going to happen. So th there's a sort of um, crazy self-confidence, but it was hugely useful to the country. So uh, that to me is... And then I think, you know, the secrecy and the not letting on what you really think is very useful in a leader. Uh, now, all those people who came into his office and went out saying, oh, boy, he's on my side, and then found out the next day that the next guy had come in and he also went out with exactly the opposite view. That's not very pleasant in ordinary life. It's very useful in politics. The sort of emotional ruthlessness that the distance creates and allowed him to yeah. keep his options open and do what the country yeah. required. He's very different from Theodore Roosevelt. He's, he's, um, he's the definition of pragmatic. He's in the, in the great American tradition of pragmatism. He's it, you know. It, take, it makes good sense to try something. If that doesn't work, try another. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, people used to say, was born with his mind made up. And that's a very different. That's a very different attitude toward the world. Okay, so we've waited to talk about uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and let's do that now and go back to his mother and his father. Uh, the father was the predominant influence. Uh, considered the best man I ever met, according to Theodore Roosevelt, uh, was uh, beloved in, in many ways and did things with the kids, but had this one 
fatal error that he always regretted, and that was not serving in the, the war, Civil War. In the Civil War. Tell us about that and its effect on theater. Well, I think it had a lifelong effect. He he really worshipped his father. I mean, his and his father was worship you know worship worthy. He was an extraordinary man. He's a, sort of the original great philanthropist in New York. He sort of set the style for that. The Metropolitan Museum is largely his creation. Um, so is the Museum of Natural History. And he did endless charities of all kinds. And he did noble work during the Civil War. Uh, he was married to an unreconstructed, as his son said, an unreconstructed Southerner who, who told him that she could not stand it if he, <laughs> if he uh, fought against her family. And so instead of uh, going to the war, um, he bought a substitute, which is what you could do in those days if you were wealthy. And, uh, but he spent the almost the entire war in, in, in army camps uh, trying to convince soldiers to send money home regularly to their families. I mean, he, he really worked terribly hard all during the war. His son never forgave him for that. I mean, it's the one terrible flaw in this otherwise perfect father was that he hadn't fought for his country. And it really did color Theodore Roosevelt's views of what he should do. It's, it's what sent him up San Juan Hill. Um, and it's what tragically sent him, made him send all of his sons, not only into the military, but into combat during World War I with the terrible, tragic loss of, of his young son, Quentin, from which he never recovered. It's a terrible... That, that is really one of the saddest stories because it's so, he's so trapped by, some, by something he didn't quite understand from his boyhood, you know. To tell the story, when, when Theodore Roosevelt and Edith find out that Quentin is, is dead, they are inconsolable. They, they're, they're absolutely speechless with grief. And yet Roosevelt says, I'm glad that my son had the chance to give his life for his country yeah. and show what was in him. No, that, I mean, that was the strange part of... Theodore Roosevelt had many strange views, not only those ones about war. He also was absolutely persuaded that a man who didn't go to war was a coward and a woman who didn't bear children was a coward. And, and he believed those were equally awful things to do. I mean, he really had some very strange muscular views of the world. <laughs> muscular indeed. But he did have two very happy marriages, one of which died, ended uh, yeah. in tragedy, uh, and the other was a lifelong partnership where he's writing the most beautiful love letters to his wife after yeah. 25 or 44 yes. years of marriage. I, you, I'm your lover. I love you yeah. so much. I can't bear to not be with you. Yeah. Uh, well, first tell us about those marriages. and how. Well, the first one uh, was, was very, very short, and they, his wife and his mother died as, on the same day in the same house. And uh, he recovered from that, and he married his childhood sweetheart, Edith, who was, an, uh, who was uh, um, Edmund Morris's wife, Sylvia Jukes Morris, has written a wonderful book about Edith Roosevelt, which I highly recommend. She's a fascinating woman, and she really, I think, kept him from sort of, he was sort of a, you know, a helium balloon, and every so often he would sort of leave the ground, and she would get him back. Um, she, she, she gave him very good, sound advice all her life. And the great tragedy of her life was that, or one of them, she had many tragedies, but one of the terrible problems was that in 1932, she got a whole lot of letters when FDR was nominated uh, to run for president, congratulating her on 
having one of her sons. Uh, <laughs> and she was so upset by this. It was the only time she ever made a speech that I know of. She went to the Republican convention in New York State in order to explain that she was going to vote. This, this Roosevelt was going to vote for Herbert Hoover. <laughs> how, how much did the Oyster Bay and Hyde Park branches dislike each other? Well, they were, they were one family at the beginning. Um, Theo, all of Theodore Roosevelt's sons, I think, thought, and I think he thought, uh, that they would one day be in politics and be successful and become president. Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was quite convinced he was going to be president. And throughout his life, apparently, uh, a nephew of his told me years ago, would uh, the president of the United States, if you have uh, a gathering, leads the honored, the most honored woman guest into the table. And he, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. always did that, no matter who was in the room. And, with, and everyone in the family said, well, of course. They almost called him Mr. President. He did not get there. And that made him mad. And it made them all mad. And they, they began to see the Hyde Park Roosevelts as imposters. I mean, they were, you know, fake Roosevelts. And uh, in, the, in the book, which has a lot of stuff in it we couldn't do in the film, we have the, a wonderful story, uh, to me anyway, they brought, the two clans came together in 1936 um, because they were inaugurating the Theodore Roosevelt Hall at the American Museum of Natural History. Tragically, there are no photographs of this event, which seems inconceivable, but there you are. Anyway, they all, the, the oyster bayers all sat on one side. The others sat on the other side. There were many more oyster bay people. And um, the president spoke. And Mayor LaGuardia spoke, and somebody else spoke. And they all uh, paid tribute to the great man, to Theodore Roosevelt, uh, as a naturalist and uh, conservationist and so on. And uh, LaGuardia said that Theodore Roosevelt would uh, disapprove of the current Supreme Court, that it was far too conservative, and Theodore Roosevelt had had his battles with the courts and Franklin Roosevelt, and so on. And then Theodore Roosevelt Jr. got up to speak. And there's a radio broadca- a recording of this, which is priceless. First of all, he'd had quite a lot to drink. So <laughs> there's a general slurring as he speaks. He does not mention the, pre- the presence of the president or the governor of New York or the mayor of, of uh, the city. And instead, he says, I won't try to imitate him, but he's with a wonderful... You know, Oyster Bay. Do it, do it. No, no, I can't. I mean, I. (laughs) (laughs) And he was loaded. But he says, um, the gentleman who spoke before me said nice things about my father. But when my father needed them in 1912, when TR ran as a bull moose, they were nowhere to be found. Mm. Well, first of all, to not refer to the President of the United States when you're in his presence at giving a speech is really bizarre. And uh, there, there was a frosty parting of the ways, and I don't think Theodore Roosevelt Jr. ever saw FDR again. I'm not sure. It, but it, 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 now, and in fact, Doris Goodwin and I, years ago, spoke together at the, the first meeting of the two. After all, this, was, this would have been in the late 80s, I think. She describes this meeting in her book, No Ordinary Time. Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, it just, oh, I, I don't really remember it, except that it was, uh, you, you could see they were trying to get along. 
you know, what does she say? I can't she, remember. She says, yeah, she said they were trying to get along. It was awkward at the beginning. They didn't know what to make of it. And I don't know, they, someone had a drink or made a joke. And finally, they came together. And on the lawn, they're all hugging and laughing and all those amazing Roosevelt teeth. So it's that's, well, that's very true. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah. In this book, uh, there's a, my, of all, the people ask me what surprised me. It's a sort of standard reporter's question, especially if they haven't read the book and don't know who you are. <laughs> Um, but um, uh, one of the things is a picture that we found, which was also in the film, that nobody had ever seen before. I knew that um, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, as in, an engaged couple, had been invited to Theodore Roosevelt's inauguration. And I said, let's get all the pictures we can find of the crowd. So we did, and we got a, first a little stereo view, and then we found out where the negatives were, and we had to make us a huge digital thing. And we went over with the you know, digital equivalent of a magnifying glass, and by God, you can see as the, Theodore Roosevelt has his hand up and is taking the oath, and you can see 40 people away from him in this crowd of thousands. You can see Franklin Roosevelt's absolutely <laughs> unmistakable uh, profile just just worshiping him. And you can also, if you read in, you can read into it the idea that he's, you know, he's saying to himself, boy, that looks pretty good. I think I'll, <laughs> I hope I can do that. And then he got to do it four times, so. Well, the, the hero worship was crucial in the ambition. You quote him in, uh, was it 1908 when he's a lawyer, basically saying, I want to be president. Yeah, oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, and follow his exact steps to the White House. Assistant yeah. Secretary of the Navy yep. and affecting his mannerisms and wearing a monocle and... He wore... Oh, he, he was at Groton and they told him he was nearsighted, so he bought pince-nez. Now, how, how many 14-year-old boys <laughs> were, even then wore pince-nez? But he did because TR did. I mean, I did it, of course, but... Well, I... <laughs> I was a Roosevelt. I only wear these too. in public. Yeah, when exactly. I'm at home, I have them. No. <laughs> uh, and Roosevelt performed their wedding and stole the show. Uh, yeah, but we, I didn't perform the wedding, but he, he, he gave the bride away. He gave the bride away. Yeah, and, uh, and said, uh, uh, good for you for keeping the name in the family, and went <laughs> off down, the, down Fifth Avenue. <laughs> I want to return to the marriages for a moment to, and to contrast the leadership styles. So why was it that Theodore and Edith were so well-suited and had a loving marriage and a very close relationship with their children, and FDR and Eleanor were so ill-suited and so estranged and had nutcase children, most of whom divorced and married many, many times. Well, uh, I think there are two reasons. I think uh, Mrs. Roosevelt had never had a mother, a, a serious mother. She had a dis distracted and ill mother who died when she was very young. Um, and so she didn't have any clue on how to be a mother. And she depended very heavily on, her, on the mother-in-law whom she later wrote such nasty things about. But in fact, her mother-in-law was the children's mother, and, and, and they thought so. And uh, she said she and was. She she said, said, and well, when, yes, later in her life she would say, I'm your real mother, your mother only bore you. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> nice, yeah, my great mother-in-law. <laughs> but but she, was the, she was a source of unconditional love for those kids. Yeah. And Mrs. Roosevelt had many qualities, but one of them was not that. And she really said once, uh, it's very nice to think of unconditional love, but I feel we should earn the love of everyone we know. Mm -hmm. Well, that's pretty rough if you're a mom. Mm -hmm. 
And Franklin Roosevelt was a very self-centered guy who wanted the women to take care of the children. He loved to play with them and throw them around and take them on a boat and stuff. Um, and then he got polio. And then he was gone for seven years. I mean, basically, he, basically, it was not a family family for those seven years. He was, he was trying desperately to get back on his feet. And he would write them an occasional cheery, vague letter saying, I understand you're doing well in school or, or you're not. The sad, one of the saddest things that ever happened to me was when I was working on uh, the second book, I had, I had uh, lunch with James Roosevelt, who was still called Jimmy. First of all, how sad is that? He was 70 years old, you know, and uh, had Parkinson's. And uh, we finished our lunch, and he answered my various questions. And he said, oh, Mr. Ward, there's one thing. I hope you'll be able to tell me why my father didn't come to my graduation at Groton. Hmm. I think of that, how many years later that is, and it was still eating at him. Hmm. Yeah. And by contrast, Theodore and Edith, I guess they did have good models. Of, uh, Theodore wasn't that close to his mother, but at least it was a secure family, and Edith must have had a good one too, and they loved each other, and, and their, their kids, kids turned, were very close their to kids them. Generally turned out better. Alice yeah. was a very complicated person, but uh, the rest of them turned out better. Yeah. Alice complicated because her mom died and she was never part of the family. Yeah. She, you never felt she was part of the family. That's right. And Edith said to her on her wedding day, I, you you've, know, been nothing, you've been nothing but trouble. <laughs> Which was true, but still pretty rough. You, you, reap, you reap what you, what you sow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um... And what was the effect of Theodore Roosevelt's upbringing on his uh, leadership? Was that in spite of it or because of it? Hmm. I, I, I think his, um, he was terribly ill when he was a child. And I think that uh, his struggle to overcome that and the goal his father set for him of overcoming that uh, in a world in which illness was a, a moral failing. I mean, his father really believed that. And so you had to get over it. You had to get better on your own. I think that had an enormous amount to do with, with his sense of, uh, of uh, energy and, uh, and optimism. This country can do anything it wants to, and I can do anything I want to. And and uh, that all fit together at the, at the turn of the century, I think. Um, I, I think uh, T.R., uh, what was very interesting to me doing this, and if, if there are surprises, it was this, I guess. Theodore Roosevelt um, suffered from depression. Um, he was a driven, he was always active, and in part he was always active because if he weren't always active, the darkness would descend on him. I mean, he could not stand to not to be doing something. Uh, uh, I don't know if any of you have been to Sagamore Hill, but there's a great big piazza. And he used to read out there when he didn't, couldn't think of anything else to do. He'd read up three books a day. And he had a rocking chair. And he would sit in the rocking chair, but he was such an active reader that he would get closer and closer to the edge of the thing. And his wife would sit there so that she could say, Theodore, and then he would, he would move back because he would have gone off. Anything he did, he hurled himself into. 
And, um, but, and, and it made him achieve all these incredible things. But it also was a sort of defense against darkness, against black care, he called it. And Eleanor Roosevelt had exactly the same thing. So if there's a genetic quotient in this, huh. it, it, this may be evidence of it. She, um, she could not stop. Um, when I was, I have a story about this. When I was 11 years old, my, I think my father, I can't remember this, but I think my father sort of encouraged me to get interested in Roosevelt because I had had polio and I should have a hero that had polio. So whether that took, I don't know. But um, when I was 11, I had read more than I should have at 11 about the Roosevelts. And I decided that the de FDR's decision to run for a third term was morally questionable. Now, only an 11-year-old would decide this. <laughs> so I thought, how do I solve this? Is my hero has done something I'm not sure he should have done. So I wrote her a letter. And I, say, I think I addressed it to, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, Hyde Park, New York. I had an answer in a week from her, carefully, and it wasn't just thank you for your interest. Uh, it's always nice to hear from people. It was uh, a careful paragraph explaining that uh, my husband was not entirely sure what he should do, but then the war began to approach. I mean, it's a perfectly sensible, correct explanation of what happened. Um, and obvious, now that I've read more about her, I realized she did, it was wonderful that she did it and characteristic of her, but it's also what she did at three in the morning when she couldn't sleep. She would, she would sit up, she'd send her secretary home and sit up until dawn answering letters from people because if she sat there alone, she would, her, the depression would, would fall on her. When she was... An elderly lady, she was very close to a, her doctor, uh, Dr. Gravich, and she told him several times, I'm very, I, I have come very close to killing myself. Huh. And mostly it was because of the things her children had done that she blamed herself for. Every time they got married again, they got married, I think, 19 times. Um, she would feel that she had somehow not been the, the mother she should have been. As she wasn't, but you're suggesting that she was predisposed to this depression. Yeah, anyway. I yeah. think. I mean, I think it's. I think it must have run in that family. Alcoholism and depression. Run the fa in that the father had it. Yeah. And then her and her brother died of alcoholism, and depression. So I mean, it. it I I don't know enough to know whether it's how much of it is genetic. I think there's a fair amount of study that there is. There's a very tender scene in, in Goodwin's book about how FDR consoled Eleanor when she found out that her brother Hall had died. They mm. were actually were, he just put his arm around her and said, come here, and hugged her, and yep. there was still a bond between and them. that was very rare, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Doris um, believes, and I don't, she's a good friend of mine, and we talked about this, but she, he has, she has, I think because she wants it to be true, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, has a, a moment when FDR wants Eleanor to return during the war and spend more time at his side. I, I, I do not believe this story. <laughs> I don't think it happened. We've talked, you know, I'm supposed to ask these yeah. excellent questions, but I, I, I'm not going to let you go uh, I'm not going right anywhere. away. Um, we talked about what made Theodore great, the personal adversity and family dynamics, and Franklin. What was it for 
Eleanor that made her overcome this extraordinarily difficult childhood and become the greatest I think lady the only, in the land. I think the only way she could stay alive um, was to do things for other people. She, she did not, on some deep level, she did not believe, although she was the most beloved woman on earth, most admired, every pole until she died said she was the most admired woman on earth. I don't think she ever believed that people loved her for herself. They only loved her for the things she could do. And she felt she got enormous satisfaction out of that. And um, I think that's the thing that, that drove her, was to, was to be of service to others. And she learned it when she was a little girl and her distracted mother who had terrible migraines would allow her to comb her hair. It was the closest she ever got to her mother. And, she, and she, the lesson she learned from that was basically, although I am not lovable, I can earn love by helping other people. Mm. And she did have that very inspiring experience at Allenwood with uh, her teacher, yeah. Madame Suvestra, who inspired her and gave her intellectual confidence. Yes. She turned out to be the smartest yeah. kid in the class. Absolutely. And she was, and she was beloved at Allenwood. And that is the first time that had ever happened. Yeah. She said that was the happiest time of her life. Yeah. She was the head girl at this girl's school. Yeah. We, I, I will ask these okay. qu questions, but, no, but I, is, it, is it really all about the mommy and the daddy when it comes to leadership, character? I don't know. I, you know I'm, I don't think it's unimportant. <laughs> <laughs> and I think in this case, you can trace a lot of it. I, I really do. Um, maybe it's just because I spent so much time thinking about them, but... I spent a long time just doing the details of FDR's boyhood. I learned a wonderful one this week. Uh, some, a nice lady wrote me and she'd seen the show and she wanted me to know that she was the great granddaughter of James Roosevelt's, Mr. James Roosevelt's um, farm manager. And she said her father, no, her grandfather, uh, if you've been to Hyde Park or you've seen any of the photographs, there's a wonderful picture of FDR sitting on a pony, and it has a saddle, like a basket, a two-sided thing, uh, so you can have two kids on a pony. And <laughs> this, kid's, this kid's job, apparently, was simply to come and sit on the other side so that, so that Franklin would be balanced. <laughs> it's also true that when he, he had, he, he dreamed all his life about, um, he used to put himself to sleep uh, by dreaming of um, uh, going on the sled down, down the hill behind that house and then climbing up again. What, but what, uh, Doris tells that story. What she didn't say, though, is that that kid was also hired to pull the sled up, and then his reward was he was allowed to come down on the sled, but he was supposed to do all the pulling. So it was, a, it was an amazing cosseted childhood. I don't know of any other American statesman who ever had a, a boyhood like his. And how on earth was he able to pose as the great Democrat and man of the people? He was the, the least Democratic president you could imagine. He liked people, I think. And I think he thought the, 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 the outside world, which was, you know, everybody else, was sort of fascinating, you know, <laughs> to visit, sort of. And he, uh, his, uh, his Secret Service... Um, head of his Secret Service, um, whatever you call it, patrol, uh, was a fellow named Mike Riley, who was a, a real nice Catholic guy from New York. 
and he wrote a lovely book about his, about his years with Roosevelt. But he says at one point, he says, the only time I always thought the boss was kind of out of his element was when he tried to be one of the boys. And I think he, he, he was never really one of the boys. He, could, he, he was always the center of attention everywhere he, was, everywhere he went. But he was quite happy to have all kinds of people feel that way. And you know, he invented ordinary people. Um, when he was in the White House, I don't know why I'm doing, I hadn't thought of this in a long time, in press conferences, he would say, um, when he wanted to make some point, he'd say, you know, boys, he'd say, um, I had a strawberry farmer in here last week, and he told me that the price of strawberries, whatever. And two weeks later, he said, you know, boys, I had a house painter in here the other day, and one of the, one of the reporters who'd been there a while said, Mr. President, was this, does he also grow strawberries? <laughs> <laughs> because no, neither of those people had ever been in his office. And he roared with laughter. Made it up. <laughs> the press conference story about him having some cigarette ash fall on the floor and the first time that the press actually saw him afraid because he was genuinely afraid of fire. Why was he afraid of fire? Boy, you, you are a good reader. Well, I like your books. They're very good books. Um, uh, the standard reason is that he had polio and he was scared he couldn't get out of buildings, and that's obviously true. It is a scary idea to think that, you know, if there's a fire, you can't get out the way the other people can. When he, but when he was a very small, I found, when he was a very small infant, he watched uh, his mother's sister burst into flames. A um, uh, kerosene lamp fell over on her. So he actually saw a person burn virtually to death. And then he was, when he was at Groton, the stables burned and all the horses died. And they all died screaming the way horses do when they're burning. And so he'd had some very vivid first-hand views of fire. And, and I think that, combined with the polio, did add. He wanted to be sure he could get out of a building. He had um, a rope that he could pull himself out with. And, and he practiced in the, he refused to have a motor in the um, dumbwaiter that he used as an elevator at Hyde Park. And, he, he would practice, somebody's doing it back there. He, he did it like this by pulling himself up and down. But otherwise extremely brave, uh, had great presence when he was unsuccessfully shot at uh, in Chicago, as did Theodore Roosevelt, of course, yeah. both of them. Where did the bravery come from? I don't know. I think that just the sense that uh, nothing could hurt him. He could run for president four times. Uh, it was very unfortunate that the mayor of Chicago was hit, but uh, I mean, he... Not only was he brave, he made them... That happened in a spotlight in absolute darkness. So there's a great spotlight coming down on the scene. Uh, there have been, five, I think, five shots fired. Several people are hit, including the mayor of Chicago. And the Secret Service said, you know, let's get the hell out of here. He said, no, boys, get the ma put the mayor in the car. And he sat there in that spotlight... Um, and then held on to the mayor saying, Tony, you're going to live, don't worry, keep talking to me, and so on, until they could get to the hospital. And this was a man who couldn't move. In fact, if he had... He made a little speech, and when Roosevelt was in a car, he would pull himself up onto the back of the seat so that people could see him. And he had done that, and he had made the speech, and the guy had not gotten his aim right and had slid, he'd slid back down in the chair. Otherwise, I'm sure he would have been killed. Mm. And if he'd been killed, we would have had Cactus Jack Garner, President of the United States. Probably not for four times. 
So the luck of the luck of the Roosevelts. <laughs> I need to restrain myself and, and get to our phenomenal uh, <laughs> questions. So here are some of them. Uh, how come the Roosevelt's miniseries didn't mention the creation of the teddy bear? Every child has one. Wasn't it named after T.R.? It's in the book. It is in the book. I saw the story. Tell it the was story. in there. We just couldn't get it in. But it's in there, and you can see the pictures of the actual bear hunt. And tell the story about how where it came from and how Teddy hated the name as well. He hated the name Teddy. He did. He hated to be called Teddy. If you, if, he said if, uh, if you called him Teddy, it was proof that you'd never met him. Um, he was on a bear hunt in uh, Mississippi, actually organized by Shelby Foote's grandfather. Hmm. <laughs> Go figure. It's a small world. <laughs> yes. And, and uh, uh, a scout had gone out and found a bear, and they were going to have him shoot it. And it was attacked by dogs and wounded. They, so the guy tied it to the tree and then said, Mr. President, now you can come shoot the bear. He said, I'm not going to shoot a bear that's tied to a tree, and thought it was a terrible hunt. That story got turned into, uh, by a wonderful cartoonist, uh, into uh, 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 T.R. refusing to shoot a baby bear, which it was not. It had nothing to do with that. The bear got smaller and smaller in the memory. <laughs> and eventually, a nice couple in Brooklyn um, made a bear and called it a teddy bear, and it became a world craze. Spectacular. Uh, what about this family made you want to become an expert in them? Hmm. I think probably I, I grew up in a, a, a democratic household, and Roosevelt was a hero. And I got interested, and I had polio. And I think probably that's what got me started. And then I began to realize that it was a much bigger story than that. And, and uh, that was the great, uh, when I suggested to Ken, why don't we do all three of them, he jumped on it because he has absolutely no fear of any subject. It's one of his great qualities. And uh, um, I, I just find them endlessly interesting. Of course, you'd written about them a long time and also worked with Ken Burns for a long time. You, you, you naturally suggested it, I guess, and, and finally... Yeah, we yeah. talked about doing one or the other, one or another of them. Yeah. And then we reached a point, I guess it was when we finished the war, when he was looking for something, other things to do, we put up a list of things. We do that every so often. And um, I suggested we do the Roosevelts. And um, he jumped at the idea. And it was... I mean, it's the joy of my life to do it. Uh, who knew I was going to be able to do it? And I, was, I, <clears throat> I went to Oberlin College, and I was trained as a painter. And so I, I have a kind of a visual imagination, I think. And a lot of the stuff that happened when I was writing the first books, I do sort of see the scene. And I have to be careful, because sometimes you can see the scene and invent things, and I don't do that. But... You know, you find out what the weather was like and you know what that road looks like and so on, and it becomes a sort of pageant in your mind. Well, to have it all these years later turn up on a screen and look more or less the way it did when I thought it up is just a great thing for me. I just loved it. Now, I know you say it's a banal question generally, but here I have to ask, were you surprised by the runaway success of the series? Yeah, and very pleased. And I don't know, we were talking about this before. Yes. I, I don't know why that is. I mean, it really is, a, I don't know what the numbers are, but they're staggering. And um, 
I think more people watched it than watched the Civil War, for example, which is amazing to me. That was 30 million for the Civil War or something? Or? Yeah, something yeah. like that. And I, you know, I, um, that success astounded me. <laughs> um, I don't know, I think people might, are interested in seeing uh, government work and, um, and leaders lead. I don't know what else it is. They also like riveting human stories. And it's well. a great story. Yeah. yeah. And they're great characters. And we managed to do it so that you, if you watched one, you really did probably want to find out what happened to those people in the next one. And that was Speaking of government working and leaders leading, this is the National Constitution Center. Yes, this sir. is the only conversation in which I'd much rather talk about uh, Roosevelt's mother and father than about the Constitution. But I do have to note that at the very beginning of the series, in the first episode, you have a historian who contrasts Jefferson's vision of the Constitution where government could not do anything unless it was specifically enumerated with that of both Roosevelt's who believed that government could do anything that wasn't specifically prohibited. It's yeah. a wonderful I contrast think, between the I two. I think that's accurate. I really do. Uh, I, I think they... They saw the con what, I can't remember what Ro what Roosevelt said to that congressman when he was going to seize the coal mines. Uh, the uh, the Constitution was made for the people. The people were not made for the Constitution. That's, you know. I'm not sure it's good doctrine, but I think I think they believed that. I think both of them did. Which isn't to say, at least in FDR's case, I I don't know enough about Theodore Roosevelt. He was. A, personally a very conservative person. He wore, he passed on to his son a Savile Row jacket that was made for his father in London before the Civil War. You know, at, I mean, because it was a perfectly good jacket, why would you throw it away? Um, he never put a, um, a refrigerator in his house. They had, a, they had an Iceman come, this is the home of the President of the United States, uh, you know, and slide the blocks of ice, which some of us remember. Um, so on that, in that sense, he was very conservative. I, I, I don't think he ever saw himself as threatening the Constitution, even when he was packing the court or trying to pack the court. But he, he was just making it work better. <laughs> well, you'll come back for another. There, there is much to say about both Theodore and Franklin's constitutional legacy, but of course, whether the constitutionality of the New Deal is hotly contested today, and many of our debates over the Affordable Care Act and the scope of government have to do with whether the constitutional revolution that Roosevelt precipitated is or is not consistent with its original vision. I, I'm often asked uh, the question that you can't answer, which is what would Franklin Roosevelt do about X or Theodore Roosevelt do about Y? You know, nobody knows. I do know, though, I'm quite confident in saying that Theodore Roosevelt would be astounded that 100 years, more than 102 years after he proposed federal health care, we're still arguing about it. It was indeed the 1908 Theodore Roosevelt Act that the dissenters in the health care case said was good precedent for mm -hmm. the health care mandate. On the other hand, Theodore Roosevelt was no fan of the courts and argued that they were so activist in striking down progressive economic legislation that Congress should be able to overturn Supreme oh, yes, Court decisions the, by... And the people should be able to recall vote. the judges, too, if they were, yeah. The progressives were not the fans of, of uh, were, were enemies of judicial activism, and this yep. was an era when liberalism and judicial restraint went mm -hmm. hand in hand. Uh, 
but, I, but we have to return to more important questions, such as, <laughs> can you comment on FDR's relationship to his own children and how they saw his relationship to their mother? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't know how he, I mean, I think, as I think I said, he, he was a very hearty, encouraging father um, with, I think, not a great deal of very subtle understanding of any of his children. He loved his daughter, uh, Anna, and she, of all of them, she was the, I think, I think because she got the most of him. She, um, she was sort of the most rational of them. She didn't go off on tangents. She didn't drink too much. She, she, um, I knew, I knew uh, Franklin Jr. and James, and both of them had very colorful private lives and so on. James was uh, really a sort of sad person. There wasn't much to him. Franklin Jr. was also sad, and you could see in him that he had a lot of his father's uh, charm. He, he was very charming and very uh, entertaining, and he, but he drank and he couldn't get himself organized to, to, to do what he, what he might have done. I think. And Elliot, who was Eleanor's favorite, was the most oh, roguish of all. Yeah. Named after her troubled father. Yeah. Yeah. He was uh, truly a sad person. And when uh, I tried to interview him and his wife got on the phone and explained that there was a charge for interviewing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if you read his books, every one of them has more lurid details that he remembered because he needed to sell another book. I mean, it, one of the sad things is there, you know, there are all these books by Eliot, and you think this is going to be uh, revealing, and you realize after you've read them carefully and thought about it, you can't really trust any of it, which is a shame. He said that FDR did have an affair with. Oh sure. Well, he and Jimmy, he and Jimmy began to compete. Uh, I can't remember which one started it. There, there was a, the, uh, there was a book about Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt. Then the boys who were then in their 60s, uh, decided that they should do new books. They'd already done books. And they rushed into print with, uh, I think Elliot says, uh, FDR, Missy LeHand was, he once saw her on his father's lap, and therefore met, meant all sorts of things. And uh, uh, James uh, said that he had, he had seen a motel, um, uh, you know, what would you sign in when you get into a motel um, with FDR and Lucy Mercer's names in it? Well, there were no motels in 1917, so that didn't happen. <laughs> it's the kind of stuff was sad. You know, speaking of this kind of gossip, there was a cartoon in the Washington Post last week playing off the great success of the series, and it's imagine if FDR ran for president today, and the questions are, are you an adulterer? Is your wife a lesbian? Will you walk for the cameras? And FDR is saying... Can I please go back to 1932? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's true. I don't think either of the great Roosevelts could have been uh, could be elected today. I think Theodore Roosevelt um, was is too hot for television. I mean, he he was this frenzied person, and with a sort of high pitched and uh, voice and a very thick uh, long you know upper crust New York accent. I don't think he would have made it. As Ken says, I don't think he would have made it out of Iowa, and. And I think, sadly, that um, in today's media world, 
uh, Fox and CNN and everybody else would compete with each other to see who could get the most, the, the footage that showed FDR at his most helpless. If they could get him being carried into a building or carried out of a building or helped to his feet, they would run it in slow motion, they would show you how pathetic it was, and people would have said, I'm not, that man is not well enough to run. You know, okay. I'm very sorry that that's true. I think it's, I think it's a terrible commentary on how things are now. I completely agree about uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and you hear Paul Giamatti is a great actor, but it's much too deep and mellow. You hear the re actual recordings of Teddy Roosevelt's voice. I will give the Standard Oil the Abyssinian treatment. It's just yeah, absolutely, there's no way to get through. It's but what, but exactly, there, that's is, why. Yeah. Is there a case though, FDR, you go to the memorial in Washington, now after a debate, he's placed in a wheelchair right up front, not uh, the, like the original statue where there's a cape and just the hint of a wheel. Could we, we, we glorify people who overcome great obstacles and disabilities? Is there any case to be made that, is, that he could have been the first disabled president today? Well, uh, if anybody could have done it, he could have done it. But I, I, I just think um, the whole idea of, of you know, we know, we know both too much and too little about people, I think. I think we, there's this endless fascination with people's private lives and whether or not they are womanizers and... And, and I think that would, it would go along with that. I mean, I think all of those questions would come up. And I think he wouldn't be glad to go back to 1932. And, and I mean, the there, there was, for better or worse, there was a sort of um, mystery about presidents. And uh, I, I regret that we've lost some of that. Max Weber, authority requires mystery. Mm -hmm. Without it, you can't, without a distance between the, leader in the people, you can't sustain the mystery on which authority requires. I think there's a lot in that. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey Ward, I really could continue this all evening, as you can tell, but I just, on a personal note, first let me thank you for honoring the National Constitution. Wait, stop. As, as FDR would say, oh, now stop, stop. Yeah. You would always do that. You know, people wait, applaud. Say, wait for it. Say, wait, wait for it. For it. Wait, <laughs> wait for, for it. it. Absolutely. <laughs> I have to, uh, it's an honor that you've come to the National Constitution Center. Congratulations on the spectacular success of the series. But just personally, as a reader, thank you for having kindled my love of history and have given me hours and hours of pleasure with the emotional insight and narrative care and literary grace of your portraits of this most extraordinary American family. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. That was fun.